David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And Tim is in Scotland. So it's his turn to be in Europe. Uh, this is Close to Read. It's a podcast for the Incurable Reader. And we are here to discuss Eugene Vodoloshkin's Loris. Uh, we're going to discuss through page, uh, what is it, 337? 287. 287. They're numbers. They're all numbers. That's very true. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. Wow, that's like the exact opposite of everything in the book. <laughs> also just a rea- reality, but they are the <laughs> same kind of thing. Um, I don't know why I said that number that I said. I just in the moment realized I hadn't checked what page numbers it was and then had to make a guess and could have reading- just said a thousand. <laughs> we, we are reading all the way to the last section of the book titled Book of Repose. That's right. So that's so stop when you get well. You don't have to stop, but we're going to discuss up through the point where we stopped at the end, the beginning of the book of repose. I feel like we're nailing this episode already. Yeah, we're gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine. We need, you know, Tim's not here, so so we've got we we, we lost that. Um, he's like an equilibrium, right? He's like a he's like a balancing effect. I know, right? Actually, I feel Three like that's kind of the, the lucky opposite. number. He's come more like an His agent numbers of chaos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. That's right. Well, how was Switzerland, Heidi? Oh, it was the worst. Oh, we don't care. Let's move on. Yeah. It was great. It was wonderful. What was I'm the best also thing glad you... to be home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the... What was your favorite um, vista? Oh, I really love that question. We stayed at a hotel on the lake uh, in outside of Lucerne, and we had a balcony, and it just overlooked this beautiful, pristine mm. lake that doesn't even look real, and it was unbelievable. And mm. we'd just sit out there. With our coffee or wine, depending on one time of day it was. <laughs> right. What was your favorite um, thing you ate? Oh, see, I was expecting that question from you. Um, and I I should say the fondue because that's like the local thing, but it totally mm-hmm. wasn't. We ate at the hamburger a couple of really in Washington, nice, D.C. airport. Yeah, we ate a couple, at a couple of nice restaurants and we had this ahi mm. that was unbelievable and if you're gonna ask me what the best wine i drank was which you should that was good um it was i got to drink a 1997 chateau de chem and of course in a restaurant i've never had that's the most expensive wine in the world or winery in the world and of course i've never had any yeah um so it's uh from Chateau de Chem is in Bordeaux, and I've actually been there, but they, you can't drink the wine while you're at mm. the chateau because it's just that good, uh, and they don't share. Um, <laughs> and, don't share. Uh, but the vines are like 500 years old at least, and the chateau is used to be the castle uh, where Eleanor of Aquitan was born and raised, and it's still standing, and that's their chateau. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty incredible experience that sounds um very european the whole thing yes. everything you just described sounds everything very I just european. Said. yeah yeah it was uh, cool and, which actually brings us to the book now that i think about it right because well actually they kind of leave europe though by the end of the section well they were there for a while that's they were the there point, was a long right? a long like jaunt through i don't europe. know if they had any chateau de chem which makes me they barely had any chateau no they really just didn't they were on a pilgrimage. There was a lot of boat, though. So much boat. And some monastery. Mm-hmm. And a lot of road. Yep. True. 
So, so we, um, we have to discuss Ambrosio. Mm-hmm. I, I want to just start there because the section, obviously, this is a bit of an episodic section. They have, there's the whole thing with Brother Jean, I guess, and you know, in the end, in the end, these two characters who we've gotten to know. Well, I, I hope you've read this section. They, it doesn't end great for them. Mm. Right before the Book of Repose, like page two seven to eighty seven, basically, it kind of all falls apart <laughs> for them. <laughs> Um, quite literally, actually. And so I want to, I just want to start by asking you, well, you weren't here last week, Tim, and I discussed Ambrosio. What do you think is his purpose in this book? Hmm. We've gotten to the end of his, you know, life. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, And and he kind of comes on the scene, what feels like very randomly. He has these, what seem like very random visions, even the scenes um, that Eugene Vodoloshkin he picks and chooses which moments on their journey, obviously, to, to show. And that gives this episodic feel in a way that maybe the beginning of the book didn't have where we were so consistently inside one ca- our, you know, Arsene's head. So he gets introduced, he becomes this like new point of view um, and this character that we begin to care about. And then he's whisked off the scene, uh, you know, far as we can tell at the end of the section right so what's your perspective on his purpose in this book yeah i think it's a really good question i mean some of what you just said and um well what do you mean by what i some of what i just said what do you mean by I, that? To, it gives it gives arseni a traveling companion and a a reason I was going to say a reason to go on pilgrimage, but that's actually not right because even the icon lamp itself would be reason enough uh, for Mayor Gavriel. Um, I think it's to give us some, partly at least to give us some relational stakes in the story with Ustina gone, one of, you know, part of Arseni's journey to sainthood through being a holy fool was stripping away all, all earthly attachments. Uh, and, and, and which is befitting to a saint. However, that undermines our author's ability to make this, to give, to give any kind of relational stakes in the story. Um, and so I think that that's part of it from a literary perspective, um, as well as, you know, you can't, you can't, into Arsini with every single saintly virtue, right? He has to have, um, he, there has to be something for somebody else. And it's, it's Ambrosio who gets to see the future and have these visions and give us this concept of time and this very significant conversation that we have in this section that we read um, about time and the nature of time. Uh, that comes, that wisdom comes from Ambrosio because he has that insight. Uh, he has this, uh, this saintly insight, this prophetic insight into kind of this overlapping, the overlapping nature of time in order and, and time and eternity. And, and he offers that to Arseni who carries it with him. Um, all of these things are, being thrown out and will be tied together in the final section. Mm. Um, so when they feel disjointed now, uh, they, that's a lot like our lives, right? Like we, 
we we live these lives that feel to us like progression, um, a progression of time and change and uh, relationships and events that feel to us as though they um, either don't have a context or a purpose um, or or they're disjointed from the larger narrative. And then hopefully, you know, we pray and hope that someday we'll see them as individual threads in a tapestry. It wasn't, they, they weren't out of context. There was a reason. Um, and, and, and that's, I think, a lot of what he's doing in this story, in these points along the way that feel like, wait, what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, Ambrosio and the journey is, is one of those, you know, one of those things. Last week. Um, but yeah, well, last ahead. week, Tim and I talked about how he just drops these, Vodoloshkin does, he drops these long sections of like philosophical rambling about things like time. You know, it could be like, a, mm-hmm. you know, you're like all of a sudden you're reading Heidegger for three pages, even though it's like Ambrosio talking to Arseny. Um, Do you, we, I don't remember if we talked about this exactly, but do you think that he is actively trying to um, like, like, uh, derail the narrative when he does that. That sounds negative, um, right? I, I, I no, mean, like, I think it's. I, no, I, I think that's a good question. Like, there's no other way to necessarily phrase that question. Non-negative, like positively, mm-hmm. but it's it's important. Like, question. I don't know. I don't know if he does that on purpose or not, because to me, it doesn't feel like a derailing of the narrative. It feels to me like an explanation uh, uh, for, for, for a non-traditional form of narrative. Like when, when Ambrosio is saying, here are my, here's what I believe about time. I, I think that's necessary to the narrative because the narrative is so difficult to follow without some kind of written explanation of why uh, of the author's perspective mm-hmm. on it as like at coming through the characters yeah. and ambrosio is a character from which i think an explanation like that works and doesn't feel like it to me it doesn't feel like i'm being taken out of the narrative mm-hmm. it feels like i'm being able it, it feels like it gives me a way to understand a perspective that's completely foreign to me and wrestle then with that idea that is embodied within mm. the story. Do I believe then that time is overlapping, that time and eternity are occurring in this eighth day mindset all the time? And if so, what are the implications for my life and my pilgrimage, so to speak, to salvation? Um, and And so... Even though the book isn't an allegory, it gives me those conversations give me a, a way to engage with it linguistically instead of just um, within, you know, just mm. within the narrative. I feel like this is one of those books that needs a little bit of tell within it. And I think it he does it as naturally as mm. possible. Well, so I mentioned that this is kind of an episodic section and we get these scenes with right. we have different robbers you know highwaymen we've got the the girl with the leprosy um we've got the donkey yeah the donkey brother <clears throat> Hugo, yeah, Hugo. And that, yeah. yeah um do you do you think he is tr- 
is is making it episodic and dropping these different scenes in like that meant to be another example of that like is he is he doing the same thing as the way he plays with with you know they'll have debate debates about the notion the notion of time or whatever or is it because mm. because that's where it can feel a little bit um, like I know it's not an allegory, but it can feel a little bit allegorical. Like you start thinking, was well, this character supposed to represent something, or is there this this relationship between Arsene and this character supposed to represent something about Arsene? You know, it can feel a little bit like he's trying because he's only choosing certain characters and certain moments of Arsene's life and journey. Those moments and those characters must have some kind of significance. You know, the, that's kind of that's the, that's the assumption. So then, why does he choose the ones that he chooses? Like, do you think he wants us to be thinking about, well, this is what the, the girl with the leprosy, or this is what the donkey represent? Um, I don't know. I, I think that this book is so complex that it's, I, I do find it hard to know exactly what, or to discern exactly what Vadalaj can is trying to do with yeah. certain yeah. details, right? And um so I think and and I'm I'm not I don't mean to answer it that way as a cop out. I, I think <clears throat> what I mean is that that's that's kind of what I was trying to say in in our first and I was thinking of specifically mm-hmm. this section in our first episode when I was like this book feels a little bit too big for me. Like I don't mm-hmm. get all of it. And and I think some of that is because I don't know the stories in the same way. I don't know the Russian folk tales. I don't know the Russian fair, all of the Russian fairy tales. I don't, I'm not embedded within the culture enough to, to kind of understand the, the yeah. weight of meaning yeah. attached to certain uh, elements of the story. Yeah, to have that like that, sense that you don't even that, need to explain it. It's might, just sort of like right. gut. Yeah. We just get it. Kind of like in East of Eden when, um, which we're doing, you know, as our listeners know on the, bonus podcasts over at Close Reads HQ, um, that has so much of that within a Western context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of it that just we get, right? Because we know the stories mm-hmm. were embedded in the culture. And and this book has that mm-hmm. and I don't get mm-hmm. it. Um, I don't understand the weight of meaning. Um, and and so I, I kind of feel like I could chase down every single one of those things, whether it's medieval or Russian or, you know, what um but i never have you know a couple times i've been like oh i wonder you know the wolf thing like what do wolves represent in russian fairy tale you know but i've done it maybe once or twice but most of the time i'm like i just think i don't get that okay i'm gonna keep reading (laughs) do you think do you think this section feels different i'm there's like a fly or a bee in the in the workshop out here and it's like up in the rafters right above my head and it's it's like at first i was like is there sh- what is going on in my brain right now <laughs> <laughs> it's like a metaphor oh, so funny for the objective yeah, correlative there's a whole episode of breaking bad about that that's it's true really yeah episode. one of the greats what um <laughs> yep do do you think do you think that this section is do you, I also say, do you think it's as good as the first parts? 
That, I think that's a great question. I think no. I, th- I think this middle section is the weakest part of the novel, like by a, by a long shot. But I, I think that, but then as I was reading it, this, I was actually hoping you were going to ask me that. Um, and as I was reading it this time, I liked it a lot better than I, I remember reading this book, this novel the first time and just being like, what is going on? <laughs> um, and, and not really caring what was going on because I, I didn't have the whole novel yet. Um, and so I was like, I, I, I remember almost quitting reading it. So you're saying um, read to the end people. I, that is part of what I am saying. The Book of Repose is one of the best things I've ever read in my life. Um, but this section is weak um, for sure. But I think it is necessary to Arseni's life, not just in the narrative sense, but in in that so many of the things that are happening in this section um, are important to the saint's journey. And the first time I read this book, I hadn't read a lot of saint mm-hmm. stories. Um, and 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 now now that I know hagiography a little better um, as an art, and I think as maybe I hope a, a little bit of a deeper insight into the journey of the human soul. <laughs> um, like I think it's so important that Arseni. Um, meets lots of different kinds of people, um, comes to the limits of language, which is a really big deal to him in this, in this Mm -hmm. section, because that's a big deal to Vodolajkin as a philologist. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and time and language become this medium through which Arseni, um, interacts with the world and helps people and, and grows in his capacity for goodness and for intervention um, redemptive intervention in other people's lives. Um, and I think it's important for him to have done that within other cultures and not just stayed in Russia. Um, and I think Ambrosio becomes a companion and a friend, which is perhaps, you know, and you, we could debate whether or not this works, but perhaps part of that is not just for the ideas of the novel, but in a narrative sense to give us some skin in the game for caring what happens to him here at the end of this section. Because now we're left with this, like, was all of it worth nothing? Mm -hmm. The icon lamp was stolen. The friend is dead. Like, was this whole journey, especially to the medieval mind Mm -hmm. that cares about Mm -hmm. things like this and believes in pilgrimage, um, was it all for nothing? And I think people who... And and I think that will be yeah, extra ahead. felt or questioned by people who have, if you haven't kept going, when you begin the next section, you're like, what? You know, there's a, there's it kind of right. like, I, I don't want to say too much, but it kind of doesn't really, it doesn't resolve those questions, especially the question of, of whether, of whether the, uh, to wrestle. like the journey itself was, was worth it. Right. Which were modern. So to us, we're like, well, yeah, it was worth it. Like, I mean, the icon lamp mm-hmm. is just a thing. But that's not at all. That is not how medievals think. Like, that is not at all what, like, this is this is close to despair level kind of thing here um, for these people. And I, I wanted to ask you this last scene when, um, when Ambrosio gets beheaded and the icon lamp is stolen, all those things. Like, 
what craft wise did the scene succeed for you? Well, that's a question of what's the goal? Like what's his goal? I I actually, you know, ironically, I actually really like this section. Um and mm-hmm. I thought there's a couple moments that were really, really like there were it felt like there were stakes in a very interesting way. Like the scene where they're about to get hung. Like the way that whole thing is crafted and then the tension builds and builds and builds and then the the um captain kind of saves the day. I thought that that all was really interesting. Um and I think some of these scenes that he creates where he's trying to create tension, he he manages it with varying degrees of success because one of the problems is is that in an episodic story like this, you can sort of like if you don't see the stakes as a big picture thing, you can sort of just be like I'm just kind of waiting to get to the end of this this episode. That's and then and then mm-hmm. then we're going to have a break between the action and I think that can kind of diminish the tension of of a moment and I think there was a couple times when it kind of felt that way but that section is really interesting because it doesn't really feel like he was trying to create tension as much as he was during the the near hanging scene they basically come up against every possible way of dying <laughs> in this journey um they almost drown i thought that scene was really good actually um they almost fall off a cliff there's diseases obviously throughout the whole book they almost get hung um and then in the end these marauders sort of they decapitate ambrosio and then we're left like well what's going to happen with our city <laughs> you know we don't that doesn't get resolved before the end of the section i don't think like he's just kind of ends with Ambrosio dying, right? Yeah. So right. I'm I've been trying to think about what he's trying to do there to say whether it's successful, because that's part of the question. Whether if you're asking me whether it maintains, like whether there's like a sufficient amount of tension and all that. I don't think there's as much tension as in the, the near ha- drowning scene or the near hanging scene, because it feels a lot more out of nowhere. But maybe that's the point. So I'm not going to say that it's unsuccessful. I think it's less mm-hmm. tense, but maybe he's trying to make it less tense. I think as a scene, it's a lot more impressionistic and a lot less focused and a lot less like mm-hmm. less consistent from a point of view perspective and all that. Like we had spent this section actually getting a pretty good, getting a, a more traditional, I guess, sense of perspective, which was helping us get to know these characters. And then here we get this whole scene kind of mediated through this sort of, I'm saying sort of a lot with this book, especially with what I'm saying right now, because I'm not sure how to explain it. Right. We get a lot of this scene mediated through a gray mist, distorted point of views. And I don't mean distorted in a negative, just point of views that have been blocked. And then all of a sudden it comes into focus that something has just happened to Ambrosio. And he hadn't been doing that. So, so that's obviously a clear choice. And it seems like he had made choices to to tell this section in a different way. Part of me wonders if he was getting tired throughout most of the, the book. And he was mm. like, it's time to do some normal point of view because this distorted point of view thing is a little bit more, it's a little bit troubling to create, you know, it's hard. And so I'm, I, part of me wonders if he was just going to like, let's tell some stories in a traditional way now. <laughs> Um, but then we get back into we we like the whole thing almost feels like a vision at the end to the point where you're not sure if it's actually happening, 
Uh, whereas I was never, I was never really unsure about most of those other scenes about whether they were actually happening. And this one for until the end, you're kind of like, wait, was this another one of his dreams? Um, but then, right. and you wonder, and then they, of course you're left wondering, did Ambrosio see it coming? And that's the part that I mm-hmm. think is not clear. Right. And that may kind of muddles the, the point, the point of view perspective and makes you wonder how to read all of his visions throughout the section. Um, I don't know. That was a little rambly. Um, did it work? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think so. I just don't know exactly. It's just hard to say with with Vodoloshkin exactly what he's going for. Right. Yeah, I think that that's important. I saw that whole scene played out in my head as I was reading it. And I kept thinking, and I, I'm not, as you know very well, I'm not like a film person the way you are. But that scene is like very, very vivid to me. And I, I, it's, it's a scene I wish I could watch. You want to watch him, bro? You'll get his head chopped off? I wish. <laughs> I do. That's what I want. Because I can, like the emotion of it is so understated, but I, I think poignant how Arseni runs to like grasp the leg of the marauder who has, you know, he's trying to stop it. and. Because he was able to stop another death recently on the ship. Um, and he notices that, right? And he, he it, on the ship, as he's holding back this boy or man who's, the, the, um, who's mm. about to be tossed over yeah. by the captain. And then he because says, the guy, like, time. Because the captain's like, stop telling me oh, these ahead. legends are wrong. Totally right. He's like Troy is real. Like the, I just like think me. that's the most Troy hilarious part real, of the whole guys. book. He's like gonna throw a guy over the I ship know, because he's like, best. "How dare you be a? How dare you? How dare you?" I know. Achilles is real. Like, he's like throwing people overboard because <laughs> they were like about to start the enlightenment. It's so it's the best. I love I love that part too. And Arseni has that little moment and philosophical moment in his head when he's like time is so interesting he talks says says it to you you know ambrosio says it's meaningless yeah like ambrosio says it's meaningless and yet one instant and i saved a Mm -hmm. whole man's life and and then but he couldn't do that for ambrosio but he tries like i i think that one like i said i think one of ambrosio's purposes in the story is to give is to give Arseni somebody mm-hmm. to love again, mm-hmm. and then and then he's he loses him, and then we get we in the next section. What we ought to be thinking is, how will this be different mm-hmm. than with? So a, one of the things that's interesting about this section is who lives and who dies, and. Mm-hmm. On the surface, it can feel a little bit like, well, actually, this whole book, <laughs> Who Lives and Who Dies, um, it can feel a little bit arbitrary. And one of the things that I think the book leaves us wondering or asking about is whether it is arbitrary. And like, even if you, and I guess I don't mean, do you believe in the providence of God or not? I don't think the book is questioning the notion of the providence of God at all. Um, but, right. you know, there's, there are questions of like, and we can get in, you could get into theological discussions of how the book treats free will and, and purpose and all that kind of stuff. Do you get that feeling that like, that it, 
do, do you think he's just trying to basically create a slice of life scenario where sometimes it does it just feel arbitrary who lives and who dies in, in the world? I mean, is that the reason he's doing that? That that you're not sure? Like, well, why does why does him why does this guy manage to why does the captain manage to save them here, but they can't get saved here? Why does this woman die here, but this one doesn't die here? Why does he heal this person, but not this person? That's actually a big one for me. Is I think you're. Right. I, I was left feeling a lot of the time like, why does he heal this person, but then he doesn't heal this person? Why doesn't he go around healing more people if he has this capacity to heal people from leprosy? And I guess that's not unlike in the Gospels when you're reading about Jesus going healing right. people. Um, I don't know. And the end of thought, no question at the end. Right. Punctuation of the period. <laughs> right. <laughs> period. Um, oh, no, and ellipsis, yeah, actually. I, I do think that ellipses, yes. I think that because I think what you said at the beginning is really important that the book never questions the providence of God, the existence of the providence of God, um, and the existence of the goodness of God is a, is, is, a given within this novel, which is maybe one of the things I love about it. Um, it's not in that way. It's not a modern novel. What do you mean? <laughs> um, and I, I mean, in that, I mean, specifically since the providence of God, the existence of God, the providence of God and the goodness of God are givens within the story. Then I, 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 I one of the reasons I love this book is that it, it is then, and mm-hmm. those are givens for me, then the book to me seems like it's asking the mm-hmm. right questions about those kinds of problems of human existence, right? If we accept God is present, like he is real, he is good, and he is provident in the sense that he intervenes in our lives for good, then why him, mm-hmm. but not him, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, 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 and so the modern experiment says, well, then God isn't any of those things. He either isn't real at all, or he's not good, or he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's the question of the modern novel, right? That's Hemingway. That's, you know, which I love all that stuff. I'll read mm-hmm. that stuff. Like I'll wrestle with that. But this book wrestles with it on my terms. And I love mm. that. Yeah. yeah. There's like um, a common, a common language that some common ground that it's growing yeah. out of. So I think that the question of why this person, but not this person, why doesn't Arseni just, you know, why is he more like our Lord and that there's such a limited field of people that receive his intervention and, and some of them still die and, and, and how, like, why? So I think that the, the book kind of makes us, as Calistos Ware said, you know, memory eternal, um, like it makes us progressively aware of the of a mystery mm-hmm. and and immerses us within that mystery and just gives it to us in these episodes and then also brings in this really interesting question of the of the of of time uh why was Arseni able to intervene in the life of this random pilgrim but not his best friend mm-hmm. He was one second too late for Ambrosio and, and, and just one second under the wire for this man, this pilgrim. Why? And then why does his, this young woman who he loves have to, and this child have to die for him to be cast, right. a, cast out on this journey um, of healing for other right. people? You mentioned the goodness of God. I would like to 
mm-hmm. ask you to go into that a little bit more. And so I shall, <laughs> uh, because, um, <laughs> I think oh, some people, especially when you read this book for the first time, it feels like an onslaught of morbidity. Um, because there's, mm-hmm. there's, this just the scene with Ustina and the baby is so, so long and so hard and so gruesome. And you've got people are constantly always on the verge of dying and like, there's leprosies and diseases and you know all the things uh, all the things that we would typically think of in like a pre-modern context when there's no modern hospitals and technology and all these kind of things and so we think of that world as being sort of um you know just harsh and yet you said that this is a book that has at its core uh the evidence of the goodness of god could you go into that a little more and show where and just kind of explain where you see that a little bit and I mean, and then we have the rest of the book to go. So right. if you, you know, mm-hmm. right. there's more to go. And, so. Yes. Some, right. And, and the book of repose surely d- takes us deeper mm-hmm. into that. Um, that I think the main way that we see it is through and in Arseni. This is a man who's, like suffered more deeply than you or me or probably mm-hmm. any of our anybody, right? That um not that not that suffering is a competition, mm-hmm. but because Vodolajkin is uh has is willing to make his character suffer mm-hmm. deeply, <laughs> um, then his his goodness, his purity of heart uh, his capacity for redemptive intervention in the life of his fellow man, his sacrificial love and courage display his progressive journey into goodness, display the goodness of God. That's how we get to see it in, in a world that's just fraught with danger and temptation mm-hmm. and suffering. The way the medieval world was in a way that we moderns, like we had connectivity issues this morning trying to log on to yeah might as well uh, have the plague and like right but i get to get in my car and drive down the street and pair to my phone problem solved like that's um i have been through suffering i did not have i've not had an easy uh, life but i i'm not medieval i'm not immersed in this life of that that are sinny that the yeah. book gives us. So okay, I know you're kind of joking when you say that about the the internet. You you are joking, obviously not kind of. I'm going to ask you a very right. big question, and it's going to be probably one that's going to be hard to answer. And we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm going to ask it anyway. There are people, though, all of us to some extent, do suffer deeply. Yes, and and suffer the slings and arrows of. Outrageous fortune, which is a line that gets made fun of, but is also a brilliant line. And we all, to some extent, are going to experience things that are just like wounds to our to our souls, right? And you know, we're going to lose people in our lives. Sometimes we're going to lose people in ways that are unthinkable. We're going to experience sicknesses. We're all going to die ourselves. Some of us probably in ways that are unthinkable. <laughs> What does this book then have to say, do you think, to the modern person who is suffering? Mm-hmm. You're talking about how this is a medieval book with, from a medieval perspective that, that is accepting certain, um, you know, th- th- certain realities as, just, as you know, just, just true. But it's also responding to a way of experiencing the world, the circumstances of, of, the, of that world. 
um, and it's and it's speaking in the language of that of that time in that world. There's a de- there's a gap between those of us who suffer now and what this book is. Then the the, the the point of view, the worldview, if you will, of this book. And I wonder what this book, what you think this book and Vodoloshkin has to say about mm-hmm. um, about suffering in 2022. Right. I think it. I think that's a really important question. I think the book has everything to say about suffering in modernity. I think that's the point. I think that's why Vodoloshkin wrote this book. Mm. Um, Interesting. And I. So. I have to qualify something I said earlier. You're right. I, we make light of, 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 of the troubles of our life because modernity is far more convenient than, um, than the Middle Ages. Yeah, but modernity is I actually, more convenient, but not less, not less alive. Not less fraught. And I, I actually, be, I actually don't believe we suffer less than they did in the Middle Ages. We are. The, the world is still just as mm-hmm. fallen. We're better, much better at masking mm-hmm. it. And we have less, far fewer, lesser troubles like travel and who, which, which actually is not a lesser trouble in, in medieval yeah. times, right? Well, it, um, as we're seeing in this novel, um, yeah. everything was hard back then. And modernity's experiment tries to make everything yeah. easy. There um, was a capacity. And, I'm re, uh, there's an amazing book, Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Weeks. I really like this book. It's, it's like a, almost like a time management it's called the subtitle is called Time Management for Mortals. And one of the things he talks about is how in medieval times, there was a higher degree of acceptance of your limitations. And we don't accept That's our limitations right. the same way. And then that leads to problems and it leads to us thinking that we are capable of things we're not capable of, which then leads us to being unhappy and unsatisfied. Right. Yeah. And I, I would say we're probably just as unhappy in modernity as anybody was in the squalor of the I Middle Ages. I think we're significantly and, more and, unhappy personally. I agree. And one of the reasons is, or could be, and I think the book posits this, that medievals accepted suffering and we refuse to do that. And and we will do anything, not just to make our lives a little bit more convenient, mm. but to sanitize every bit of real human mm-hmm. suffering. Mm. Yeah, that's the key. And, it's not trying to get rid of the suffering. It's trying to sanitize right. its existence to convince Which ourselves that we're not I suffering. Think which is why I think that's why Vodolajkin wrote this book mm. is is the is to say the that partly that's why I think there's so much emphasis on bodies and is that the world is not sanitized it cannot be sanitized either spiritually or physically mm. and so the answer is arseni mm. the answer is to carry the weight of the life of the world and 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 to intervene redemptively wherever you are given without trying to save the world. Is that is that what is the book saying that that is the work of salvation? Yes, that's what I think. Well, that's and that's what I mm-hmm. think it is saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very mysterious book. And that's just letting question. all of those things that you were taught that you brought up before, letting those things be a mystery while still accepting the terms that God is real, that God is good, and that God is provident, and yet. And yet we suffer. And, and that, is, that is the human journey. And the medievals got that in a way that the moderns don't, which is why I think that Vodolajkin wrote such a medieval book. I think this is also why for so many millennia, the notion of the saints being with us 
is yes. so crucial. And this is a book about like the saints being with us, the saints who have suffered and endured and overcome being with us, praying for us, all those sorts of things, being real in the world is crucial. Right. You know, once you and, like, there's a great comfort in that, I, I, I suppose. Right. Well, and I, I want to be a saint. I hate even saying that out loud because I'm so not a saint, but I want to be, I want to be like Arseni mm -hmm. and, 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 and this book has, I, one of the reasons I love it is because he's so human in it and, and, and Vodolashkin doesn't try to give him, doesn't try to make him wicked or flawed or, he's I mean, he just, is, but just in a human I mean, obviously, way, but, but he, he does become progressively more saint-like throughout his life. And, and Vodolashkin doesn't apologize for that or try to make him relatable by, you know, making him sleep with a prostitute or whatever. Like he's, he just lets him become a saint. And that is like, I, I love that because I actually think that's truer. Mm. I think the more that he's experiencing theosis, he's partaking in the divine nature. And so sin has less and less of a hold on him. And, and I hope and believe that that is true for those people who are becoming progressively more saint-like. Mm. That, I mean, honestly, that seems like a great place to stop that, that idea. <laughs> um, we've got Tim's back next week and we're going to read to the end of the book. And then that will be able to unleash all the topics at that point. Uh, ask all the questions, answer, answer with the full book in view. And then the week after that, of course, we'll do the Q and A. And then we're going to dig into, uh, Amor Toll's book, A Gentleman of Moscow, A Gentleman in Moscow. I don't know what I just said, but, um, do you have any final thoughts? What should people be thinking about as they're reading towards the, the final pages? Yeah, it's it's to look for all of these threads that maybe we felt were disconnected, um, to look for them being woven back in. And as Arseni becomes an older and older man, to just what he's still carrying this mm -hmm. burden, right? And so what we what we need to be asking ourselves is is what will happen to Ustina's salvation mm -hmm. and his own. Okay. Well. I'll let you get back to um, dreaming of the love of Lucerne and lakes and, and expensive wine. Um, I assume that that's all you've been doing since you got back is just. Well, actually we have ducklings that hatched while we were oh, all gone. Okay. And oh my gosh, they're the cutest things ever. I'm going to post a picture. So we have like these little fuzzy yellow ducklings that just like waddle around and follow their mom and. It's the cutest. So Lucy would now be the wrong time been... to tell you that duck confit is one of my favorite foods. No, this is the right <laughs> time, but you're not invited to my house anymore. I'm, just kidding. <laughs> I would... I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it, it is really good, but also, you know, it is so good. I like pork too. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, pork is delicious. Um, all right. Well, all honey, right, thanks well... so much. Um, we will be back, as I said, next week. Tim will be back from Scotland. Um, he'll probably wishing he was he was still in scotland but but as you said it is good to be home too sometimes so it'll be good yes. to have the whole gang back together mm. uh, and then just a quick programming note uh as obviously we have the east of eden episodes going on those conversations have been awesome like i'm really excited about what you and me and sean have been been able to discuss over there and then we are going to in a couple weeks um so this is going to go up on like roughly the 28th 29th of august um, so in about a week and a half, we're going to be dropping our 2023 book announcement episode. We've recorded it. We know what the books are going to be. We're 
taking pictures of them and prepping the announcement and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be the big announcement week. So get ready. We'll have lists and photos and make sure you're following on social media uh, if you're on social media. And then otherwise, we will send out an email with the whole list as well. So I just wanted to let you know that that's coming. All right. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, who's probably wearing a kilt right now, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.